Coming up on this week's show, a crazy use for your Game Boy camera. Something amazing for Battletoad fans. And how to get the most out of your retro system with My Life in Gaming. This week's show is brought to you by Harry's and our friends at ExpressVPN. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 241, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And it's time to geek out about our favourite subject in the world, old school video games and systems for the next hour or so. Our favourite topic, although not everyone gets it, I've got to say. Now, uh, before we get into what we're going to be talking about this week, I actually had an electrician come around my house. And obviously, you know, at the moment, you don't have a lot of people around because of, you know, safety procedures and all that kind of thing. He came around because I needed some work doing. He's in my retro room and he's like uh, looking at my old system. He's like, oh, that's really cool. Yeah, I remember having that. He goes, but why don't you just use emulators? What do you need all this stuff for? And it made me realise that not everyone gets why we want to use the original systems and the original hardware. I think there is just something, like almost a soul in these classic machines, that you can't get by using a Raspberry Pi or running an emulator on your PC. I have this battle with myself, I think, on every week at least. You know, my game collection's ever-growing. Um, it's nothing compared to some people's, but, you know, I'm getting into the thousands now. And I do think to myself sometimes, like, I could just sell all of this, and then I could literally just get some EverDrives and some SD cards and then I'll have them just to play whenever I want. And I'll have all this money. And then I think to myself, well, what would I spend that money on? And I'd be like, probably spend it on retro games. <laughs> <laughs> you see, I've, I've been doing pretty much the same, but I'm like, I, I've been selling my games and I've been kind of consolidating my stuff into like old systems. Because what I really love is playing it on original displays. So like yeah. having a CRT monitor and it just takes me back to the time. So this week on the show... We've got an amazing channel, which is called My Life in Gaming. And if you haven't seen them before, they give you amazing tips on how to get the best picture quality out of your retro system. So we've got Corey and Tryon. And these guys, you know, they specialize in this stuff. And they're they're one of the best. They're the best on YouTube talking about these systems. Like their frame master guides are absolutely amazing. And in this interview, we talk about so much stuff. We talk about... EverDrive, CRT versus um, LCD screens as well. We talk about upscalers and kind of which ones are the best. And also we talk about using the old school stuff and just going directly to old cathode ray tube kind of monitors and televisions. Yeah, and it was a really good interview as well because like it was just cool to kind of like find out how they met and stuff. And then what I love as well is these guys are both, you know, before they did My Life in Gaming, they were both professional videographers as well. So they're really passionate and they know what they're talking about, if that makes sense. And luckily for me as well, they do try to dumb it down, you know, because I'm, I'm not a smart <laughs> guy. So sometimes I'm like, what on earth are they, these guys on about? But they kind of come full circle with it. And it was just really good to kind of like, it was me and Ravi and then obviously Corey and Try, and they just bounced off each other so well. Well, yeah, you guys did this interview, so I'm looking forward to hearing this. And again, I mean, you know, like we were saying at the start then, I think there is a fine line. I mean, for me, if I set up machines that are like, you know, emulation machines, I generally spend a weekend setting them up and then I don't want to use them and I put them away in the cupboard. But also on the same note, I'm not using like my Commodore 64 with a tape player. I'm generally loading things from SD card. So there is like, you know, a way that you can have like, you know, modern benefits on retro systems, I think. But the the point about having LCD versus CRT 
is something that I've had like major arguments with on like Facebook groups and forums because not everyone gets it. I mean, there are some people who are like, well, what's the difference? You know, you've got your original system there. But I, I almost think like if you're going to the, the extreme of having all this original hardware, you may as well invest in the thing that you're going to spend most of your time looking at, getting a really nice display. So getting some tips off these guys who, you know, have got a real strong background in this, I think is going to be really useful to anyone who really wants that authentic retro experience. And as you hear on this show, we are always covering these new kind of devices. It's it's kind of like a hybrid bike or a hybrid car where you've got like an old system with a, a new way of delivering the media. So like a Everdrive or something, and then you've got an upscaler going to a, a new thing. Or you've got one of these new mini consoles as well that just kind of does it all as well. So it's really interesting subject to cover. Yes, I think you're going to get a lot out of this if you're into using your original systems. Corey and Troy from My Life in Gaming are going to be our guests on the show in around 20 minutes from now. Now, before we get into the news stories this week, just time to say a big thank you to one of our big supporters this week, our very good friends at Harry's. Now, obviously, the world is gradually starting to reopen in lots of countries now. People are slowly starting to get back to work. Maybe you've been at home for six months and you're thinking... I need to smarten up a little bit at the moment. Because, I mean, the thing is, if you're going back into the workplace, you want to look your best when you haven't seen your friends or your colleagues for like six months. And our friends at Harry's, I've been a convert for Harry's, you know, for at least a year now. I used to be the guy that used an electric razor, and I didn't realise, you know, that I wasn't getting a close shave. When I got halfway through the day, I'd get itchy. It would always be a little bit stubbly. But Harry's actually have got an interesting background. It's two guys, Jeff and Andy, who are on a mission to essentially fix shaving. And they got fed up with overpriced razors, and they started their own company because they knew that was the only way they can ensure high quality is by buying their own factory. And they take less profit and offer great quality products for a fair price and their amazing blades are almost half the price of the leading five blade brand so we want you and obviously you'll be helping out the podcast by doing this to start shaving with harry's today and claim your trial set for just £3.95. So support the Retro Hour, get your trial set delivered to you by post, including a razor handle, a five-blade cartridge, they'll include the foaming shave gel in there as well, and a travel blade cover. All you have to do to claim it right now is head to harrys.com forward slash retro, harrys.com slash retro. Thanks to our very good friends at Harry's. Right, then let's get into the stories this week. Some updates about AntStream. Now, obviously AntStream, they were kind of billing themselves as the Netflix of retro gaming, weren't they? Yeah, so they AntStream's a streaming service that was based in the UK, but they've also um, started getting investment with big gaming groups like Tencent in China. And it's interesting because they've just made an announcement, and it seems a bit clickbaity, this announcement does to me. Um it says Antstream partners uh, with Arcade to offer the world's largest collection of retro gaming. So it's like the world's largest retro gaming library. Now, what they've actually done is they've they've uh, got in partnership with Starhub Mobile Plus, which is a kind of a mobile service in the Asian Pacific region. Right. Now customers will be able to access that retro gaming library, but only in the Asian Pacific region. So for me, it seems like actually all you're doing is you're getting like, you know, like there's Meerkat Monday things or, or like a built-in kind of deal that, that would have been available to these Starhub Mobile Plus customers anyway, and you're just getting it on 
Antstream. That's my understanding of it. Maybe it will happen worldwide. So, you know, Antstream, you can actually get access to this library that they have. But I'm not sure how much the rights kind of work, especially if they're in just the Asian Pacific region. Yeah, you've pretty much hit the nail on the head there. Like, that is pretty much the entire article. So, Ravi, he's completely right. It says, like, you know, oh, yeah, it's coming to mobile and all this kind of stuff. But then it is literally just Asia. So, who knows? It might come over to the West, which would be really cool. I think that would be a big thing for them. But, like you say, how does it work with the licensing and stuff like that? Because literally, you've got like Space Invaders, Asteroids, and Double Dragon. But then you've also got like, metal stuff and stuff like that on there so i've got no idea how that works really and what makes me think about that as well is because they say on it they say aside from the games library itself customers will also get access to tournaments challenges and exclusive gaming events and i assume that those are just the gaming events that are happening in the asian pacific region yeah i would imagine yeah i mean i was about to say something like oh maybe they're just testing the waters and stuff like that but i guess that is still like half the world when you think about it it's just not very relevant to us and considering it's a uk-based company it's just i don't know it's a bit strange for me i think with endstream as well i mean it's probably kind of like you know like netflix for example they probably have licenses that are only valid yeah, in certain yeah. parts of the world which is always going to be a problem with kind of streaming services i think yeah and they've got free access at the moment so if you want to try out Antstream, it's free for the first month and then it's uh $8.99 afterwards. So I, Have I, you guys tried it? I was going to, I'm literally about to say, I, I'm really not that familiar with Antstream. So, can, as a, based in the UK, can we use it on our mobile and stuff like that? Or is that, that's not something we can do yet in the UK? I, I haven't tried, I haven't tried it outside of shows. Fair so enough. I'm going to have to give this a go. We're really yeah. bad, aren't we, guys? <laughs> I actually have. I've, I've tried Antstream. Okay. Um, I signed up for the month and, you know, first day I got it, I spent maybe two or three hours just kind of going through the library and having a quick, you know, five-minute game on each thing that looked interesting to me, but I didn't actually use it again after that. I think, though, I mean, we've talked about this before. It's kind of like, you know, the mini arcades. It's, you know, I looked at that and I could play Double Dragon on it or I could actually play it on, like, my NES instead. Like we said at the start of the show, you know, I'm kind of a more of a real hardware purist, so... It didn't really feel like, you know, the full experience. Mm. I can get for people that, you know, haven't got all these, like, stupid old systems hanging around their bedrooms and living rooms and everything, and they want an easy way to play it. I mean, it makes complete sense, but for me, it was just something I kind of used for an hour or two and then didn't pick up again. But Yeah, and I'm just trying to sign up at the moment, and it's kind of got that sign-up model where it's like, oh, we will charge you every single month, but the first month's free. Please put yeah. your credit card details in, et cetera. <laughs> so, I mean, it is cool that they're expanding the library in any, any way that they can get. You know, obviously, like you said, it's region-specific, but I think the more games that are accessible on these services, the more valuable they become. So that's always going to be a problem that, you know, you might sign up to it, and all right, it'll have, like, you know, the games that everyone knows on there, but often, a lot of the time, your favourite game will not be on there, and, unless you're really into, like, you know, the mainstream games that are everywhere, there's not much value in it, I guess. And also, this being like in that region, maybe those games are hugely popular in the region. Mm. And if they do go out worldwide or if they get the rights to distribute it worldwide, then there could be some titles that, you know, you guys haven't heard of before and it could be a way of exploring uh, a new retro games library, really. Yeah, I'm sure Ravi will find a way in. Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> right, let's talk about this really weird use of a uh, Game Boy camera. Now, I've got a Game Boy camera, and you know, for many people, that was um, probably the first camera they took a selfie with back in the day. Uh, it turns out that actually someone's done a pretty insane mod using a DSLR camera on a Game Boy. Well, it's actually using the lens. So um, I don't know if you've ever seen these mods on like the iPhone where you can clip on a lens. Yeah. And it basically just expands uh, the size of the lens. So yeah. what, what they've actually done is uh, uh, Sam Kenzie has 3D printed a kind of little mount that sits on the back of the Game Boy camera. And then he's got this insane um, 700 to 200 millimeter lens, which is quite wide. And he's put it onto the end of the Game Boy camera and it's allowed him to get some... Uh, Images at 0.1 megapixels, (laughs) but they do look a lot better. They do look a lot better than the actual original Game Boy ones. And, you know, he's taken a photo here and he's actually got it printed out on a piece of canvas at the very end of the video. And it it looks like it's really got a nice aesthetic. See, did you have a Game Boy camera and printer back in the day? No, I've, I've played with one, though. Yeah, and uh, the, the printer wasn't very clear, was it? It uses till roll. Um, yeah, my missus had one when she was a kid, so I've actually got it now. I've got to say the camera on it, yeah, it, it's never been something that you probably want to use even 20 years ago. Uh, you know, if you had any other kind of camera available. It's a cool use of it, though. I mean, it, it's kind of interesting that these things that were considered novelties for kids you know back in the day and now kind of producing art projects yeah and the fact that you can use something like a lens and put it on there to kind of help the game boy camera give it a give it a little boost really although i wouldn't fancy sitting my game boy down on the table with that connected to the back of it so that's gonna add a bit of weight to your game boy isn't it paparazzis with their game boys going around. that's the new way of paparazzi taking photos of celebrities <laughs> Yeah, if you got make out who it is, you can't be sued. Yeah, I'm exactly. a blur on that. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're on the subject of Nintendo. Um, more mods as well. Now, this time, a Nintendo Wii has been made to look like a Game Boy Color. This is insane. So this is a guy called Ginger of Mods, who, at initial glance, I thought he'd, he'd got an actual Game Boy Color and he'd put a Wii in it. I was like, how has he done that? How has he fit a Wii in here? But it's not quite what it is. So what he's made is the Wii Boy Color, which is a 3D printed Game Boy Color, essentially, like a shell he's made, and then he has put a Wii inside that shell. But the shell is slightly bigger than a Game Boy Color, which is still a very impressive feat anyway that he's managed to condense it down into that because it is literally millimetres bigger. But then what he's done is it has got all the slots for the controls and stuff like that. So he has managed to get the control, you know, the the, the thumbstick and everything like that into the uh, into the actual shell of it. But this is insane because it's only got, I think it's a three cent, you know, what is it, a three inch screen. And it's yeah. just, he's playing Super Mario Galaxy on it. And you're just like, how? How has he done this? It's It's pretty mad because like... If you think all this technology he's using is kind of homemade, so he's used yeah. a 3D printer to 3D print the case. Mm-hmm. He's got the display from a car backup camera. Yeah, um, he's used the lithium-ion batteries as well, and it's got a USB-C port. He's got a fan in there, but also the the Wii uh, motherboard is able to split into three parts. So I yeah. don't know if he's actually cut that out 
or or if that's the way it was kind of designed. Um, he he but... must have cut it out. He must have done. I mean, the, the the I mean, the thing about this is he's not done it in like an afternoon. It took him nine months to make. Apparently, I wonder if the sensor bar's in there as well because it has got a Wii Mote next to it. Yeah, I, I was going to say he's playing Super Mario Galaxy on it, so it must have the sensor bar in it as well because of you, you you need to play it. <laughs> you, need, you need that to play Mario Galaxy. So. So it, 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 it's insane. The funny thing is, he'll probably get a cease and desist from uh, Nintendo now next week. <laughs> thanks video, to you, Joe. Yeah, thanks to me. And the video will get pulled down. <laughs> He's also got the, the little Wii thumb controllers. Actually yeah, well, it look, it's actually board. two controllers he's got in there. There's a Wii controller, and he's used parts from a DS Lite as well. Oh, okay. For the, uh, the action buttons. So, yeah, it's kind of a hybrid, but it looks really slick. No, it when is I saw beautiful. That, I want one. <laughs> yeah, when I saw that, I thought, oh, that, that looks cool. Where do I buy those from? Yeah, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, and he's got like a little side-by-side picture um, with an original Game Boy Color. And obviously the screen's wider because it's a more modern display. But otherwise, I mean, the dimensions are virtually identical. And it's it's ideal as well, the size of it. Like if, because I'm, I'm doing a Mega laptop mod at the moment. And like, I couldn't 3D print a case of that size. But... You know these kind of Game Boy cases, and they just fit perfectly with the 3D printer. I love the way that he's got a fan in there as well. Obviously, yeah. all that stuff needs cooling in there. Imagine your little Game Boy just kind of floating off the table because of the fans running that hard. <laughs> Although that was a concern of yours, wasn't it? Putting the battery in your Amiga laptop. I know you keep an eye on your shed where it lives to make sure it doesn't burst into flames. I, I remember battery management now. It's, it's, it's going to be fine. Yeah. I remember when he sent it over and he was like, right, I've got the battery. And he was just like, pray for me. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing can go wrong, Remy. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, this does look awesome, though. And, yeah, all, all I can say about the uh, the Wii Game Boy is I want one. That looks insane. And now, actually, uh, sorry, thinking of that for a second, I just thought about it, and the Wii is a bloody good emulation machine as well. Yeah. So he could probably run, like, GameCube games. Game Boy or- Color games. Game Boy Color, <laughs> Game Boy games on there, yeah, everything. I've made yeah. this Wii to Game Boy, and now I'm going to run Game Boy games on it. <laughs> <laughs> so nice work. That does look very slick, I've got to say. So if you want to watch that video, I'll link it up in our show notes, of course, at theretrohour.com. Now, let's talk about Battletoads, obviously legendary game. Now, this is a new release then, limited edition of 2,000 cartridges that you can play on your original NES. Yeah, so I'm going to put my you know, my foot in my mouth again here because of Dan sent this one over and I was like, okay, Battletoads is cool. I really like Battletoads. It's not like oh, my favorite game ever or anything like that. So it's 8-bit, what are they called? I am 8-bit have put this out, a uh, new completely playable collector's edition for the NES. Um, and it is really fancy looking. It comes in a nice foil box and it's a translucent green or translucent brown uh, cartridge, completely playable. And it's $100. And once again, I was like, $100. Like, you can get Battletoads off eBay for... I looked it up before the show. I was like, you can get it for 17 quid, buy it now. Like, don't get me wrong, that's not boxed. And I said this last week about Turricum. Who's going to buy this? There's 2,000 copies. It's sold out already. (laughs) 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 The people want it. (laughs) There's obviously a demand for these, like, high-end ones. I remember they did the... um... Was it Street Fighter ones that they did a while ago? Yeah. Yeah. They were really nice and they were high end and like modern modern printed ones and they all yeah. sold out as well straight yeah, away. Yeah, they had the red cartridges and stuff, didn't they? And they, they yeah. and once again they were like a hundred dollars. Like I always see them and I'm like, This is so cool, I wanna pick this up and then I'm like, Oh, it's a hundred dollars, like you can buy Street Fighter Two for like 
five quid for the SNES kind of thing. And then next day, sold out. Sold out, like, all 2,500 <laughs> copies. So, I mean, it does look really awesome, and it is like a proper fancy showpiece. You have it on your shelf, and you're like, you know, I think the translucent cartridges, they don't look like one of these Chinese knockoff, like, 101 games. You know, you get 100 games on one cartridge. It is, like, a really nice kind of well-made product. But I, I'm torn, because, like I say, I think that's really steep at $99.99, but... They sell out straight away. They sold out in like a day or something like that. And if you're a rare collector as well, it's got the rare logo on there. Yeah, it's got the, it's got the rare logo down in the corner on there as well. You and can it, see this hit in a couple of markets, you know, the nostalgic kind of console people, but also the rare fans. Yeah, and it, it's cool that it's completely playable, but I don't think people are buying this to play it. They're buying it no. as a showpiece. Yeah, and it, it looks like a really high quality product. You know, like I mean, you actually got the colours wrong. It's not just green and brown; it's zit green oh, and pimple brown. The, get the it character right. names. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, it comes in the you know the box looks incredible. It does look like it could have been you know uh, like a premium release if they mm-hmm. did those thirty years ago. Yeah, one you um, would win for winning the competition or something. Yeah, and I mean, you got stuff like you know the instruction booklet, restored artworks in there as well. There's, you know, there's a lot in their custom dust cover they include, a few surprises. I mean, if you are, like like you said, Ravi, if you are like a, a rare collector, of which, you know, there are people that want to get every rare product, anything related to them, or if Battletoads is one of your all-time favourite games and you just want something that's going to look really nice in your collection, I think that's a market that they're aiming at with these kind of things. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think obviously people want this kind of stuff. We all know in the retro gaming community, often, you know, we, we find an excuse to spend the money, don't we? Yeah, yeah, 100%. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, unfortunately, it did sell out pretty quick by the looks of it. Are there any is available then? Are they going to be doing any more? Do we know? Or is I, it- I think they're limited numbers, it looks right. like. I was going to say, at the point of us recording this, we're at, we're a week ahead, which never happens, yeah. but we're actually a week ahead this <laughs> time. Um, and I saw this this, this morning, uh, Dan sent it over, and it was already sold out by that point, and the article was from today. Like, They're probably so, already going up in value. Yeah, so <laughs> you'll probably see them on eBay soon. Yeah, j- just watch next week, Joel, I'd bought one for 400 quid off eBay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolute bargain. <laughs> now, before we chat to uh, the crew from My Life in Gaming about getting the most out of your retro systems, um, this is an interesting article here on a website called The American Genius. Now, obviously, with you know travel around the world kind of been non-existent over the last six months, we know that the Boeing 747, I think I read the entire fleet's been grounded, like, you know, there's like none in the air at the moment. Um, but there's an article here. This website is kind of worried that Boeing still uses floppy disks to install updates on 747s and some 737s as well. Now, some people are kind of getting their uh, their knickers in a knot over this and kind of panicking a little bit, saying, how can we be relying on this ancient technology for, you know, something that's so important? What do it's, you think? It's interesting because uh, it comes from an investigation by the Register, who are absolutely awesome. And they basically looked at an old Boeing 747 and they realized that the key navigational database, uh, the updates that they have to do every four weeks, so this is every month they have to do this, they have to go in the cockpit and do it via floppy disk. So there's a dude that's hired by Boeing to go into cockpits and just sit there at once a month updating these things from floppy disks, and God knows how many floppy disks he has to use. Um, you'd think, like... They could probably just take the floppy header off and put a GoTech in there <laughs> yeah. and then um, do it via USB. So it doesn't make my skin crawl that much because it's still it's still data, isn't it? Like it's not 
it's not relying on the floppy disk to actually boot and <laughs> keep the plane in the air. But it is amazing to think. <laughs> yeah, re- read error at 40,000 feet. <laughs> <laughs> and then the plane crash. Oh, man. Oh, God. That's terrifying. But, yeah, um, I think it's interesting because we love covering these stories of, like, old technology still kind of being used. I remember the last one was um, the employment system in America, and they were looking for Fortran um, yeah. <laughs> engineers. Cobol. Yeah, yeah, COBOL engineers to kind of come and start programming new systems for it. But uh, yeah, and we had the nuclear warheads using eight-inch floppies. I was usually thinking of the one where it was in the UK, where the U- was it like MI5 wanted somebody to come and program. You, you yeah, know, that was it was a nuclear <laughs> nuclear warheads, and then they yeah. also left left the door open, didn't they as well? <laughs> <laughs> But oh, what are the chances yeah. anyone that walked in had an eight-inch floppy disk on them? See if it was USB. Someone might have one. <laughs> Leave the doors open with it. That's it. Stuff. I think we need to sell some GoTex to Boeing. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I, I, on on a serious note, though, I guess the fact that these planes are not connected to the internet, you know, they're not getting updates over the air, you know, no pun intended. Um, they haven't got a USB port on there. This is probably a, a more secure way these days of like limiting the access to it. I imagine. Yeah, it just reminds me of that scene where Bart Simpson's on the uh, plane and he turns his Game Boy on. <laughs> just oh, <August>. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so long may it continue. Good to see there's still a market for floppy disks when, you know, planes get back in the air. Yeah, yeah, at least they're still probably getting printed <laughs> because they need them. <laughs> Driving the prices up for us retro fans. Now, we're going to chat to the crew from uh, My Life in Gaming in just a minute. Now, before we chat to the crew from My Life in Gaming, let's give a big thank you to another supporter of this week's show, our very dear friends at the amazing ExpressVPN. Now, you might have used VPNs before or heard about other ones on the internet. There are lots of them out there, but obviously, if we're going to recommend something to you, we've done our research and we want to recommend the best one. And I know, Ravi, you're like particularly into your privacy, which is why ExpressVPN is your favorite VPN service. Oh, I love ExpressVPN because it doesn't log any of your data. Like lots of cheap or free VPNs make money by selling your data to advertising companies, and we really wouldn't want that. Now, ExpressVPN have developed a technology called Trusted Server that actually makes it impossible for their servers to log any of your information, which is really cool when it comes to privacy. And of course, speed is something else that we love about ExpressVPN as well. I mean, there are a lot of times when you've got ExpressVPN in the background, you don't even realize that it's running there. Because I forget, yeah. Yeah, everything's really quick. I mean, you're streaming HD videos with no lag or anything, and it's really simple to use as well. All you do is fire up the app, click one button, and you connect it. And it's not just us saying this, Wired Magazine, The Verge, CNET, many of the tech experts agree that ExpressVPN is the number one VPN in the world, which is why we want you to protect yourself with ExpressVPN by heading to this website, and you will get three months free on a one-year package. And of course, you'll be helping out the podcast by doing it. So head to this website right now, expressvpn.com slash retro. That's expressvpn.com slash retro. Thanks to our very good friends at ExpressVPN. Now, of course, we do have a patron to support this show as well. Now, the way we always talk about this, the fact that Patreon, everything we earn through there is reinvested into the podcast. Like at the moment, we're getting you guys some nice home studios built at the moment because... (laughs) Whenever we record this podcast, we get a little warning on the system that we use 
normally about Joe's PC, saying that it's um, <laughs> under the recommended RAM limit for like what about the year two thousand seven? You've got less than four gigabytes of RAM. It keeps kicking off about. Don't. Oh, so, oh. so the other night after me and uh, Ravid finished uh, finished recording with uh, my life is game my my life in gaming. It, we were like, oh, it just takes a few minutes to upload. And it came up on my screen saying that uh, it can't upload it. Uh, it can't upload the recording. And that I needed to inst- I needed to insert, you know, a hard drive or something. And I was like, oh, my God. No, we've just been recording for like an hour. This is like, one, we could lose it all. And two, like, we don't want to annoy the guests and just be like, guys, we're so sorry, but it didn't record it. Do you know what I mean? Oh, no. And I just sat there looking at it like, oh, my God, what's it going to do? And then all of a sudden, the bar started moving. And I was like, I'm just going to say it's, it's my computer, guys. And it, after a few minutes, it, it, it uploaded it all. But I was just sat there, like, sweating, like, oh, my God, it's not going to work. Well, with your guys' support, we're um, basically going to be getting some new equipment soon. And, you know, your continued support is going to help the quality of the podcast improve. So we're doing extra content soon. We're going to have a video, hopefully, which will be good. And we do our Patreon meetup as well every month. Yeah, and thanks to you guys. I mean, we're just waiting on Joe's new computer to arrive. The monitor's here, the mouse and keyboard's here. Uh, we've got you some nice Shure microphones that are going to sound so much nicer. Little roadcaster mixers too. So you're really going to hear an improvement in quality in this podcast over the next couple of months. And hopefully, like Ravi said, we can get video by the end of this year as well. So it's all thanks to you guys. We really, really appreciate your support. And it means, you know, we can keep bringing this podcast out every Friday and uh, do the best that we can. So thank you so much for the uh, support this week. Let's give a mention to the people who've made their space into the Hall of Fame. Gavin Creech. Martin Breer. Andrew Siddall. Ewan Matthews and Wanderly Session who all made donations into the running of the show and if you can find it in your heart to back us we'd really appreciate that you'll find the link right now on our website at theretrohour.com right then in a sec we're going to get the most out of your retro gaming systems with the amazing Corey and Try from My Life in Gaming You're listening to the Retro Hour and I'm here with Corey and Try from My Life in Gaming Hi there, how's it going? Awesome. Well, we've got a question that we always ask our guests, and uh, I'll ask Corey this first. What was your first kind of gaming experience or memory? Well, the first game that I remember playing is Pitfall on the Atari 2600, but the first gaming experience that really had a profound effect on me was uh, Space Harrier from Sega in the arcade. Oh, that that was a great game, wasn't it? (laughs) Yep, it's, you know, it's one of my favorite, if not my favorite game of all time. What about you, Try? Uh, I mean, you know, for me, it's it's one of my most vivid early memories. I was either four or five years old and uh, I was with my cousin and she asked me, uh, you know, hey, when we get home, do you want to play Super Mario Brothers? And like I was like, yeah, I like playing stuff like, <laughs> like <laughs> you know, I, I didn't know what playing Super Mario Brothers entailed, but I, I like I like playing uh and then when we got there like here's this thing that you control uh, on a tv it's on tv (laughs) but like i i like push buttons and it does stuff like i mean it's probably kind of a unexciting thing to say oh yeah my first video game was was super mario brothers i was especially in america that was probably a lot of people's first video game but it it, it was for me and uh you know from, from that point on uh Video games have, have always kind of been a constant for me. <laughs> well, you'll kind of be amazed at how many guests we've had that have come on and just said, 
seeing something move on the TV that you control was just mind-blowing and revolutionary to them. Oh, yeah. I mean, people these days, I I assume almost no one has their mind blown by that because they have seen it before they can even remember anything, you know? Yeah, that that's kind of the thing with me. I I my older brother had a Mega Drive, so I don't know life without a Mega Drive. So I can imagine that's like <laughs> yeah. absolutely amazing to have like had your mind blown like that. Like like you say with my daughter, it's she's gonna know that as soon as she can because she's kind of conscious. Do you know what I mean? She's gonna be understand yeah. that and stuff. So that's really. <laughs> and cool. you want to show stuff to her and say, yeah. like, "Doesn't it look awesome?" And they're like, "Well, not really." <laughs> <laughs> exactly when I'm showing her back, man. Hundred <laughs> percent. So how did you guys meet? Uh, uh, so, uh, back in 2007, another mm-hmm. friend of mine, uh, Drumble, uh, we, we'd been online friends for a long time and we started a website called the backloggery. It's just backloggery.com. And, uh, it's all about tracking your game collection with more of a leaning towards tracking your backlog, focusing yeah. on, what you have unfinished and what you still need to get through to the end. And, you know, maybe, maybe to encourage you to focus on games you already have rather than, you know, spending money on a new game and stuff like that. Um, And uh, we've fostered a really amazing community there over the years. And uh, Corey, you know, was just a community member there, but we just kind of got to be good friends. You know, I think both because we were, playing a lot of the same games at the time and also because we both uh have our our professional backgrounds are both in video production and editing so you know i guess we just kind of had a lot of lot in common the backloggery was kind of a pivotal moment in i mean in playing games for me i'd been away from games for a long time probably like five or six years as i was pursuing my career uh in in video and post-production in new york city and one of the reasons I kind of got out of games is because I was just had so many games and didn't play anything and I couldn't stick with games enough to play all the way through. So joining the backloggery changed the way that I played games, made me commit to them. You know, I said, OK, I'm going to start this game and I'm going to play all the way through it without playing, starting something else. And just I mean, it just was a great community. Well, what were your kind of setups back in the day then? Because if you guys are into video you must have really been into getting the best quality. And a lot of people were using like just standard televisions and uh, stuff like that. What, what were you guys using to display your games? Well, I mean, back in the day, uh, I mean, I had access to really terrible televisions. Uh, yeah. All the televisions in my house uh, all the way through high school were capable of nothing better than RF video, uh, you know, and then, uh, with like the N64 system started not shipping with RF switches anymore. So I would have to route systems like N64, PlayStation, GameCube, and PS2. I was routing them through a VCR and then into my TV. But when I was getting ready to go to college, uh, this was 2002, you know, back then, you know, a, a screen is still what we thought of as a big bulky thing. You know, it was difficult to fit these bulky CRTs and a small space like a dorm room. So I was like, I I ended up getting a new computer monitor that was at the time. I was like, this is really nice. Uh, What if I could play my video games on it? 
Mm. I, I was not really a big PC gamer. You know, I was mostly thinking like, I want to bring my GameCube and my PS2 to college. How can I play those games on this monitor? And I end up buying this ViewSonic uh, device that took composite and S video uh, and output it VGA with a VGA pass through for your computer as well. So I could switch between computer and video games with uh, no trouble. And that thing just blew me away. I'm sure if I really went back and looked at it today, it would not impress me at all. But that was my first exposure to S video. And I was aware that S video was like this step up over composite and RF. Mm -hmm. And uh, even though I didn't like bring my older systems like Super Nintendo with me to college, when I was home during the summer, I was hooking up my Super Nintendo uh, and PS1 and stuff like that to uh, this device. And I just loved how much clearer it was. But in retrospect, that was kind of a, a, a sidestep uh, from, you know, uh, the path that we ultimately ended up taking, because I think be making that jump from terrible RF televisions to uh, playing it upscaled on a VGA monitor, uh, I, I feel like I lost the appreciation for what a actual nice consumer CRT television does for retro games. And, you know, I kind of continued you know, later on as we got into RGB and stuff like that through other upscalers, even though I always had an appreciation for the CRT aesthetic, I, it was still a long time before it really clicked with me. Like these displays are, are really handling the games in a very different way from how a modern display or even an upscaler does. So it, it kind of took me a, a long time to loop back around to seeing like what that nice consumer CRT uh, really does for, uh, you know, uh, games of that era. Yeah, you know, it's, it's funny thinking about that because I think the first time I really realized that that HDTVs were treating this signal poorly is by playing something on the virtual console. And the TV I was playing on at the time was taking 240p and interpreting it as uh, 480i. So I was like, why is my – every time I get hit, my character, like, disappears for, mm. you know, like several yeah. seconds. And I – that was the first time it kind of clicked with me that, Hey, this is, this is not the same. Right. Because, because even at that time I was, I was out of things for long enough that, you know, when I, when I moved to New York to pursue my career, I didn't really bring anything with me. Uh, I, I was like using a game boy, playing on a game boy advance for, for the first year that I was there. So I, I guess just having that, that time in between uh, having a CRT then having nothing and just using a Game Boy Advance and then, you know, uh, meeting somebody and moving in and buying a new TV, you know, getting like a nicer TV. Like it just that time, that gap, like made me forget about what a CRT looked like. Right. And, and sort of a, a similar thing for me, ironically, because uh, I did buy a CRT. I bought a super, you know, nice CRT. I bought a big 36 inch HD CRT because at that time I already knew like LCD screens, like they're kind of cool, but the black levels aren't anywhere near as good as CRTs. So I bought this big CRT with all these amazing video connections on it. And I thought I had the best CRT in the world, but then something that I eventually learned later is 
even though that's a CRT, yes, you're getting the benefits of the black levels and stuff, but it doesn't treat old games the same way that a, you know, what I now know to be what you would call a 15 kilohertz CRT, you know, that, that mm. traditional CRT uh, that does standard definition. Uh, you know, you can't play light gun games on the HD CRT. Uh, it does deinterlacing stuff, which could be good for like 480i games, but it didn't. It didn't give me a good view of what older consoles really could look like on a CRT. So again, I had all of these sidesteps along the way where I was like kind of in the ballpark of like being interested in this video quality stuff, but I was maybe not always making the right choice that would ultimately lead me to understanding like, Oh, RGB. Oh, professional monitors. Oh, just using a standard consumer CRT can actually be better than an HD CRT and stuff like that. And I don't think that we really had a moment that we realized this until we ran across a site called, uh, uh, hazard city. Yeah. 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 Uh, run by a guy, uh, Fudo and he, showed off the XRGB frame Meister on there. And we couldn't believe the images that we were seeing that this was even possible. And like, I think even just like the thought of scan lines and stuff is something that we didn't really think about being a thing on CRTs until we saw it being interpreted that way by an upscaler. Right. Because I always, in my head, you know, there's people who say like, Oh, I always saw scan lines. I didn't see the individual pixels. I saw how it all blended together. And I think that's just a matter of perspective. I personally, you know, especially because I was into stuff like Mario Paint and things like that, where you build uh, sprites with like pixel art and stuff. I always like saw like seeing the pure pixels as like the the truest representation of the game. But I also like wanted to play original hardware. So like being able to get that, that almost emulator like look with the original hardware was such a, a a dream for me. And, and the funny thing is, I mean, we didn't start the channel really to be a hardware channel, but I'd say this channel started because we got the frame Meister. We had a good way to capture the original consoles that looked better than what most people were doing online. We said, well, we should, you know, use our video experience and make a YouTube channel. But it, it wasn't until later that we actually even got into CRTs and stuff. So we started the whole RGB thing before we even understood like PVMs and stuff like that. So it's, it's a miracle to me that we've like been embraced by the community as we have, because I feel like we've had so many opportunities to lose credibility along the way. And we, we've just adapted. <laughs> you mentioned that you guys were videographers and, Kind of how much has that experience helped with like knowledge of aspect ratios, NTSC versus PAL and stuff like that? To some extent, I mean, it's it's helped a ton, but I, I, I don't think it like really I think about it having, you know, my previous knowledge uh, of like working in video, like transferring over to this stuff. It's weird because I, I think of them almost as se- like separately. You know, my video knowledge more comes into the fact that of like producing the show, if that if that makes sense. <laughs> right. I mean, there, there's definitely like a, a a more of a narrative side or or presentation side uh, to having a video background, whereas you know the the technical side is kind of a separate thing. I've always like kind of seen myself as being in between 
creative and technical. I'm not like super good at one or the other. I mean, yeah. Uh, And, and that I think part of the knowledge of like, you know, RGB, like, even though I worked at like, you know, my job after college was a college TV station. And, you know, even though like I was doing technical stuff to get the shows on air and things like that, uh, I don't think I really made a connection of like how, how could some of this stuff be used to improve video games? But I think where it did give us our edge, at least for YouTube was, I think especially at the time we were starting the show, there weren't, I feel a lot of people making YouTube content that really had that professional video background where they learned, uh, you know, uh, through, you know, a college education or anything like that. Like, you know, what are, what are the rules? What are the standards of, of making a video? Um, and we thought, you know, Hey, that, that's something that we could bring to YouTube is, you know, making edited content, you know, not just let's plays or, you know, uh, things with a bunch of jump cuts. Like we wanted to make it so th- that was really our main focus. It wasn't really so much about the technical side because that, that didn't come until later when we started doing a lot yeah, of it was, it was over a year videos. before that happened. Yeah. Before we yeah. found our calling in, in the, in the, uh, in the tech side. It's interesting. You'd say that because of just going off topic a little bit there. I I'm, I'm a sucker for watching let's plays and, you know, sitting there and just getting engrossed in watching the gameplay and stuff like that. But there's something about your channel. I think, that just kind of has that edge where like I find myself just watching your guys' hands on like a piece of tech <laughs> and just like mesmerized by it. Just like, you know, there's something definitely there in the quality of the show as well. Uh, but, but like I say, that was a bit of a sidestep there, more of a compliment. But um, the next question is, first there was the Frame Meister, then there was the OSSC. Which one do you guys think is better? And is there any other upscalers you rate? Uh, I mean, uh, the Frame Meister is is still a very good device. I mean, obviously everything, you know, that it, w- it was a good device when it was first available and it's still a good d- device today. Um, but the OSSC does provide better results for uh, RGB. It provides better results, especially for 240p games, you know, those lower resolution games that were before uh, consoles were commonly interlacing stuff. Um, and the, the frame master kind of has some issues with like some weird noise and the color and stuff that the OSSC doesn't have. The OSSC is a, a more pure conversion, I guess you could say. Hmm. Um, but the, o- the frame master does have an edge uh, with uh, interlaced content, like especially stuff that yeah. you would get out of like a PlayStation two, for example, Which is- most, most games on, on PS2 are interlaced. Which ironically is the reason that it's getting it's been discontinued is because of the the chip that it uses for the interlacing is no longer in production. Right, right. So we actually have kind of come up with a workaround for using an, I guess you could call it vintage uh, deinterlacing box called a, a DVDO iScan Pro. You know, I think it's from the early two thousands, and it can take interlaced in and then just outputs it deinterlaced analog straight out. Now it does add like two to three frames of lag. So we we're like playing on a CRT when we're playing the game, but then we're capturing it uh, with it deinterlaced fed to the OSSC and then the OSSC doing one more line doubling 
pass on it. So that, that method has resulted in some really nice capture, but it would be a little laggier for gameplay. So I don't necessarily know if I would recommend that. Um, the other devices that we've really, uh, recommended a lot lately is the retro tink series, uh, by Mike Chi. And that he has a whole line of these devices for people that have a, a variety of needs. Uh, and they're, they're a bit less expensive than the OSSC. Um, and they accept composite video and S video. So they are great starting points for people who are like, uh, I don't know if I really want to deal with getting RGB cables, uh, especially people here in America that might have less access to them. Uh, they uh, might just want to stick with S video or they don't want mod systems like the N64 or the 3DO, which output S video is their best signal. So it's a, it's a great option for people who just kind of want to dip their toe into this uh, video quality stuff. And 480i stuff looks better than on arguably better than on the, the OSSC, at least it's smoother. You know, the OSSC does this whole Bob D interlacing thing where it actually kind of flickers like interlaced video. And a lot of people really don't like that. Yeah. Plus it, it kind it, of it, screws up some IPS monitors. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it looks really good at giving the same impression that interlacing looks like on our CRT though. Yeah. Do you think that like frame meisters are going to get a bit more rarer then? Oh, oh they already, already are. I mean, yeah, they're already selling for, I've seen some going for $800 on eBay already. Oh my gosh. Okay. I yeah, best hold on to mine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> unless you're, you if, know, if you're really looking to, to cash in, this is the, um, basically the time to do it. Yeah. But you know, the, the Freemeister is a very nice, well-rounded device because and it, it handles, has like compatibility on its side as well. Right. That That's something we didn't really mention, especially with the OSSC. Compatibility has improved, but a lot of displays are not going to like the signals that it spits out, largely because it's very beholden to the signals that the original consoles are outputting. And some of those are kind of wacky off-spec signals. They don't really conform to the the television standards i mean even 240p on its own is not really a proper television standard it's just a way of manipulating the way that crts work to create a low resolution progressive image at 60 frames per second uh which was not at all the the standard of of tvs at that time so uh, and that's the reason, one of the reasons that modern TVs don't necessarily handle video games correctly because it is th- those signals are off spec. So the OSSC, if you've got a tolerant TV, excellent. But the FrameMeister is, 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 is a very well-rounded device, but it's especially because of the, the rarity, uh, it's, it's not really, you know, we don't tend toward recommending you buy one now, but if you've already got one, you know, you're pretty set. It's still a great device. Also cables, like we, you mentioned earlier, RGB, uh, we're really lucky in Europe to have RGB scarts. And um, <laughs> I remember my Saturn actually has a RGB scart and it looks really, really nice. Where would you guys recommend getting cables from? And uh, what, what are your favorite kind of gaming cables at the moment? Well, you know, a lot of people, I think especially people who are from Europe uh, that comment on our videos, you know, they think in terms of like, oh, do, do I need to get like the uh, the official one or, you know, because they, they remembered seeing those at the store back in the day. And, mm-hmm. you know, usually they're like, oh, you know, we should get the official ones. But, uh, you know, the reality is there's not necessarily that much value. I mean, I guess there's considered a, a collectible value uh, in, in the original, but, 
uh, you there are community cable makers uh, that provide cables that you could arguably say are better than the originals. Here in the U.S., uh, we've actually got a a British immigrant, uh, <laughs> uh, Rachel Selesky, who runs a, uh, a website called Retro Access, and she hand makes custom SCART cables. Uh, and she, she keeps so busy that her orders are only open for like lately she's had, (laughs) it's like one time a month now. Yeah. Yeah. Like she's had to close orders for like the week or the month after like an hour of accepting orders Wow, because, because there is enough of a market for these RGB cables and people I know get frustrated with the, the availability situation, but you know, when these are being handmade, like that's, that's just the reality of you can buy, like if you go to like AliExpress or eBay or whatever, there are, you know, a lot of really cheap SCART cables and they aren't Mm -hmm. properly shielded. Uh, and there will be noise introduced from the, uh, sync line, which is actually Mm -hmm. just using composite video, uh, using composite video for your sync line is fine, but those cables are so poorly shielded that it causes interference issues. But if, if you, you know, don't want to wait around for like the specialty cables with like this super high grade, uh, cabling, another one that we recommend is insurrection industries. Mm -hmm. Uh, they have some more mass produced cables and they're like $30. I forget if they're still available on Amazon or if you buy them through like, I know that Castlemania Games has stocked them. I think you might be able to buy them directly from the Insurrection Industries website. But those are also very good cables. Um, that and of course, there's in in Europe you have retro gaming cables, uh, correct? Okay, which is you know the first place that I actually bought any any SCART cables from. They've been doing those cables for seven plus years at this point, and uh, they and they have recently come out with the um, the Rad Two X, which is you know, it's console specific upscalers. They actually uses the technology from the, the retro tank and they were designed by Mike Chi. Uh, but I mean, retro gaming cables is a, is a good choice for anybody who's based in, you know, in Europe. I was going to say that, sure. that made me sound, uh, feel really spoiled because when I was younger, I used to go to uh, our pound shop. So, <laughs> you know, and I just used to pick up these really cheap SCAR cables. <laughs> and like you say, they did have a lot of interference, but they were just for gaming on and stuff like that. Well, yeah, yeah, I mean, no matter what, it's going to be better than what we had. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the CRT of those days, like the, the fidelity was not that high. So you probably wouldn't really notice the flaws anyway. But it's funny because, you know, we get a lot of comments that are like, you know, oh, I'm so, so glad I grew up in Europe because we had RGB and it's like, but you know what? No one really had a perfect system because yes, we had crap video quality, but we also had 60 Hertz. I um, knew you were going to say that. I knew that was coming as soon as you said that. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's funny, you know, it, I guess everyone has a different perspective on which, which was the nicer perk to have. I mean, you know, I, I, I guess I am glad that we had the 60 Hertz because most of the games were designed, at least the games that, that I was playing, uh, you know, were designed in Japan, which also operates at 60 Hertz. So usually when the games were brought over to Europe, they kind of did a, a, I don't like to use the word lazy, but, you know, a, a easy conversion. Uh, where it just slowed the game down. But there were, as far as I understand, a lot of games that were speed corrected so that they (laughs) 
they run at the correct speed, but it's just it, it uh, you know, 50 frames per second we, instead of 60. Growing up, uh, me and my friends, we used to play Mario Kart Double Dash, and you could do that on Double Dash and plot it right. in 60 hertz, and we used to call it fast mode because we didn't know <laughs> why. <laughs> like, let's play on fast mode kind of thing. <laughs> it, it, it's really unfortunate because a lot of times it would it would ruin the the integrity of the music. Yeah. You know, yeah. Having it yeah. slowed down. Yeah. You know, I, I remember I've read stories online of people saying like, uh, you know, uh, their 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 American friend, you know, who had moved to Europe, you know, pe- people at school would say like, oh, their their copy of F-Zero is faster. And, you know, that just yeah. sounds like that just <laughs> sounds like, you know, playground drivel. Right. Like, it just sounds like something that people just just made up. But it, it's true. The, their American friend did have a faster F-Zero. <laughs> That's amazing. So um, what's the best way for you guys to capture Game Boy on a modern television? Uh, Game Boy has like a ton of options now. Probably, I mean, you know, obviously you can use like the Super Game Boy through, say, an OSSC or a device like that. And uh, what I like to do when I'm doing that is use the black borders on the super game boy. Mm. And then some TVs like have a, like I've gone LG OLED and I think some other LG TVs have this feature where you can do this like free scale mode. Like you've got your standard aspect ratio modes, like 69, zoom or whatever. But then there's like a free zoom mode where you can size it however you want. So you can kind of blow it up on, on your TV that way. <laughs> Uh, that, that's kind of probably the most accessible way if you've got a Super Nintendo. But, you know, GameCube Game Boy Player is is also, like, potentially a really great option. The official disc that comes with it, the software isn't that good. It's kind of laggy. The scaling is poor. Uh, the colors are, are not great. Uh, but there's homebrew software called the Game Boy Interface uh, that's developed by this guy, Extremes. Uh, and he do- updates it extremely frequently. It's kind of difficult to keep up with with all the <laughs> new updates that come with it, but it's been excellent for a long time. And he's got all of these modes where you can play them in 240p. Uh, you can play them line double to 480p. All sorts of different compatibility modes, uh, and especially if you've got you know a PAL GameCube with RGB cables or any region of GameCube with a HDMI or component video option, even S video, uh, you can get it looking excellent with the Game Boy interface software. You just have to have a method for launching homebrew like the GC loader, or you can use like an action replay disc with a uh, SD card reader for uh, the memory cards or, you know, one step beyond that. um, Although with very (laughs) similar results is the Game Boy consoleizer, which actually uses a real Game Boy advance uh, with a mod for HDMI output and a Super Nintendo controller port. And that outputs 720p, uh, a Game Boy Advance, Game Boy, Game Boy Color games. Uh, and that, that, that right now is my preferred method. You know, a lot yeah. of people look at that mod and think, oh, it's really expensive. Uh, but like my end game has always been, I want to play my handheld games on the TV. I want to be able to capture them, record them, put them in videos. Portable is great, but I like playing on the big screen. So like, this is a device that is made for me. So the price does not bother me. (laughs) And even until recently, it was, uh, the firmware made it so that the Game Boy uh, console ran at uh, 
uh, flat uh, 60 hertz. And the Game Boy screen originally runs at like, it's like 59.7. So that kind of disqualified it from being used for speedrunners and stuff like that. But a recent firmware update allows it to run at the original speed. And it might not be supported by your TV, but I mean, you know, just having the option to be able to do that is worth it. And people can use that on compatible TVs to practice their speed runs and legally. What issues have you guys come across um, when you're capturing footage? Like I know Sonic 2 is a particularly hard game to capture. And have you had any like menus that are different resolutions to actual games? And does that cause any issues? Um, Well, I mean, the OSSC will change depending on what your output is. If it's 240p, you can do like, I like to do like a 4x scale where it scales it to 960p. Uh, but for stuff that's like 480i, you can have it line double that to 960p as well. So it's, it's stays the same size. Sometimes you might have to adjust the aspect ratio a little bit in like in post. I like, I like the 4x scale because you have, it's not quite 1080p. So you'll have to do a little bit of a scaling up in, in post-production, but I like that, you know, that uniform resolution for, in between, looks, ever, like, yeah, all the it looks very sharp, even though like you could with OSSE go up to like 5x, which is 1200p. But it is right. nice that you can take 480i content, 480p content, and 240p content and scale all of those to 960p. That makes a very consistent sizing that makes it easy to work with and editing and to present them kind of equally. But uh, kind of getting more to your question about like, do you have issues with like changing resolutions? Uh, you know, there are games like, especially on like PlayStation one, Sega Saturn, some on N64 where the gameplay is 240p. Uh, but then the menus might be 480i because they're like, wow, we can do this. So let's just do this. Let's, let's have high res. I mean, on a CRT, it's instantaneous and it looks really good on a CRT. It just, I remember the first time I saw something that was 480i, a game that was 480i on a CRT and it just... I mean, it may as well have been HD. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but uh, when you are using a digital device, uh, there will be a drop when you're changing those resolutions. So games like Chrono Cross is the example I always think of. It has 480i menus, but the rest of the game is 240p. Silent Hill is another example. Dino Crisis. uh, Several games on Saturn. Um, And... That, that, you know, especially an action game uh, like Silent Hill, you know, when you go into the menu to equip an item, by the time it appears back on your screen, like the monsters probably killed you because it wasn't an <laughs> yeah. instant switch like uh, like it, it should have been on a CRT. Um, and there unfortunately are, aren't a lot of good solutions to that because the only way that you're going to get that instant switch on digital display is if that 240p signal is handled incorrectly. If it's handled as 480i, which is going to be giving you input lag, it's going to be giving you unnecessary deinterlacing artifacts. Um, and so, yeah, there are some devices that don't have that drop, but your your trade-off is that your scaling isn't quite what it should be. All the devices that handle 240p correctly, they have that drop. Now, there is something with the HDMI uh, 2.1 standard. Um, I forget exactly what the feature is called. Um, 
but th- there is a feature that is supposed to allow like instant switching of content. Like for example, you know, this is probably made with like Blu-rays in mind. Like if you're using a uh, PS4 or an Xbox one and you are in the system menu and then you launch a Blu-ray, there's like a drop. There's like a signal drop as you're like switching to Blu-ray mode. Cause it's like probably switching from like 60 Hertz to 24 Hertz or something like that. Uh, and, and there is a feature in the HDMI 2.1 spec that is supposed to allow instant switching, switching of the content. Uh, I, I don't know for sure if that's going to make it possible that devices like the OSSC could have well, a truly instant switch or not. But Right. Well, the, the, the device would need to support that as well. So nothing well, that's currently available. I mean, uh, HDMI 2.1 has been incorporated in a lot of like really new TVs, but stuff like that hasn't been uh, hasn't been fully taken advantage of yet. It's more for right. future proofing. And, but, you know, an interesting challenge with kind of the retro tech scene. I mean, a lot of this is very, you know, I don't know if grassroots is the the term for it. But, you know, this is this is done by like passionate community members, very small companies, things like that. Uh, they have difficult time getting access to like 4k driver chips, you know, and, and, you know, not to mention all of the costs associated with being like properly licensed by the, the HDMI consortium. I like there are fees that to, to make products for the scale of the retro community is just for a lot of, of people and a lot of projects very, very difficult to do. And, you know, some companies have gone the way of being uh, officially licensed for HDMI products, uh, but a lot of others have taken the route of, well, we've got an HDMI plug, but we're actually driving it with like DVI standards or driving it with custom video drivers from an FPGA chip instead of like a, an actual like dedicated HDMI driver. I mean, it's, it's really interesting the, the workarounds uh, people, people have had to do because of, because of that. But it, it's hard to say like how soon the retro community will really be able to fully embrace 4K uh, just because of some of those limitations and the costs associated with it. So uh, Ravi and our other host, Dan, are absolutely huge Amiga fans. Would you guys consider <laughs> doing an Amiga capture guide? If, if either mean, one of us had one. Had one. Oh, okay. yeah. Right now, my, my, like, I, I feel my most significant like, you know, exposure to the Amiga at this point is using uh, a Mister, which is like mm-hmm. the FPGA uh, console. Well, it's like a not a console, but it's like a like a like a homebrew it's, system. But it's like you know using existing it kind of right. multi system FPGA. Right. I mean, yeah. it's it, it kind of fills a similar niche, a similar niche that like uh, Raspberry Pis or whatever, where you know you can load up a whole bunch of emulators and a whole bunch of games. Except the difference is it, it uses a hardware method of emulation rather than software. So it, it, it assuming that the cores are programmed accurately, it, it can in theory uh, reach a, a level of uh, response and accuracy that, that, that in theory would be better than uh, a software emulator. But again, it, it always comes down to, you know, how accurate is that uh, emulation core uh, right. But it, it's kind of the hot thing right now in uh, in the retro hardware community because uh, it is a bit different from your traditional emulation. And, well, right? let's talk about retro hardware because there are some <laughs> really cool things coming out at the moment, like a lot of solid state devices that are 
replace the CD-ROM drive and oh, stuff yeah. like the EverDrive. What are some mm-hmm. of your favorites? Uh, well, I mean, my current favorite is probably the Mega SD, which is the uh, Terra Onions flash cart for the, the Sega Genesis that also has uh, Sega CD game support. Uh, having that come out, that came out about a year ago. And when that was announced, it was such a huge moment because this was something that hadn't really been done in the like the flash cart scene. And, you know, I, I'm a big Sega CD fan, so I was super excited for it. And recently, you know, uh, Crix came out with an EverDrive, the Mega EverDrive Pro, which does a very similar thing. And both devices are extremely similar in their operation, but it's been interesting watching them come up with different features that the other ones don't. But I think that's good. It's like the competition is good because if one side, one cartridge gets a feature, then it's only a matter of time before it shows up in the other. You know, there's been a lot of back and forth about people being disappointed. Like, oh, I wish I didn't spend the extra money on the Mega SD because there's a, like a like a seventy dollar, seventy US dollar difference between them. But also, I mean, the Mega SD came out a year before, and it does have arguably more powerful hardware in it. Uh, whether or not that's actually going to make a difference in the long run, but I mean, because because Cricks could take that the Mega SD, look at it, and say like, okay, so what are the things that can shave off of this and still get you know look to lower the price, but also keep that same hardware or that same power? And uh, so, I mean, I I hope that people don't feel bad because they spent more money to have an extra year playing these games. They they shouldn't be there shouldn't be any like fighting between the, the yeah. two the two groups. Uh, I mean, there's 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 this unfortunate mindset uh, that a lot of people seem to take, uh, which is like, I don't want a better version of this thing that I bought to ever exist. <laughs> You know, yeah. that's just, uh, and, that's and, just and, me with like modern consoles. Like I'm not ready for PS5. <laughs> no, I, I, well, I don't blame you. Like I, I, I want it eventually, but I just, I don't, I'm not, I still have a million games I haven't played this generation. Yeah. Which yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, and you know, th- to be fair, I mean, I think that's, that's a, that's a common mindset that's like, oh, you know, like this, this, I mean, relaying it to modern games is, is a very good way to put it. But, you know, the, the reality of a lot of these um, retro devices, sometimes when they get updates, uh, part of it is because some component of that device has, has reached the end of its life, exactly. just like with the Frame Meister. A, a core component of the frame meister is, is discontinued Well, you can't build a frame meister without all the parts. So right. and that's- when, when like the, the, it used to be called the SD two SNES. Now it's called right. the, the FX pack because it uh, uh, had to get around. Uh, I, I guess, you know, SD for SD card is, you know, like something that you're supposed yeah, to It's like Panasonic Toshiba and uh, yeah. And, and, Apple or or no <laughs> not Apple but it's like it's like three companies but they've been kind yeah. of pushing around people like using yeah. like like the letters SD right but the the FX pack is like you know it's kind of like the premium Super Nintendo flash card because it can uh, emulate some of the special hardware in that cartridge. Uh, that, you know, a, uh, just a basic Super Nintendo cartridge, you couldn't play games like Star Fox, Yoshi's Island, Kirby Superstar, anything that uses like a, uh, a Super FX or SA1 chip. The FX pack, it can do those. Uh, but part of the reason that the FX pack 
came around was the original the SD2. Pro. The, the well, FX, the, 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 right. Right. Well, the FX Pack Pro, you know, there was like the SD2 SNES, and then they started called the SD2 SNES Pro, and they had to be changed to FX Pack. But, you know, a lot of people were very disappointed because they're like, oh, I thought this was going to be like the ultimate hardware for a Super Nintendo flash cart that would it would never change. And now you're making this new version. Well, the reason they made a new version is because some components that were not easy to get a hold of to build those cartridges anymore. Yes, it does have like some slightly new features, but it doesn't make your old version of it bad now that there's like right. a new well, version. And a lot of people just have a hard time seeing that. I, I think a lot of people are like, I've bought this machine, so I, I need to kind of defend it. Yeah. <laughs> it oh, needs yeah. to be the I best mean, quality. It's it's almost like console wars, but <laughs> you know it has that same feeling as as a, as a console war. I yeah, guess. absolutely. No, I, I completely agree with that. I, I do it all the time, <laughs> like, like I said with the PS5, but I do it definitely with hardware as well. It's not nice <laughs> when you see. <laughs> So uh, our next question is, uh, your videos are massively researched. How do you go about this? How do you kind of, you know, start researching? How do you decide a, a topic for the next episode? And have you ever missed anything and realized in the future or had to go back and add anything in? Oh, yeah, oh, we, we miss stuff all the time. We, I mean, yeah, we, and, and we don't really change our episodes, you know. Uh, maybe, like, if it's something that's pretty obvious, mm. you know, and when we release it, I will I will render out a version of that video with the error corrected. Yeah. That like if we if we upload to Amazon Prime or something like that, that'll be corrected on there. But I mean, we I wish that YouTube had an option to swap out a video, but people would probably take that and do horrible things with it. Yeah. And you know, I there's just nothing you can do once you go on YouTube. And not only that, because you know, you if you release a video, you know, it's up there for three days. And you have to pull it down and make a change and re-upload it. It's going to like lose all those views and people are are not going to watch it again. So mm -hmm. we just sometimes we'll just like pin something in the uh, description or like at the top of the comments uh, about it. But I will try to change that. I would try to fix it for like maybe an eventual Blu-ray release. Just like yeah. do it right away. I mean, the, um, the, the unfortunate thing about hardware, I think, uh, is that. I think hardware can actually be a very stressful thing to work yes. with because, you know, when, if you're just doing a video, you know, our audience, unless we take kind of more of, we've done some videos on just about games, but they kind of take more of our angle with it. Like what's the best way to play this game or the best way to play this series? What's, you know, what are your options? How are the different emulated versions, you know, where, where we kind of do the pixel peeping and, you know, uh, really analyze the different versions of the game. People have responded well to that, but if we just do something, it's just like, us talking about a game. Sometimes we do episodes like that just because we want to, but mm. our audience doesn't really latch on to that. But other audiences for other channels, you know, the, where it's just them talking about games, those do very well for them. But for us, our audience doesn't respond to it. So I think if you're talking about just a game, you know, maybe you've got a bad take on a game, but hey, that's, that's just your opinion. But when it comes to hardware, yes, Man. there can be some opinion there, <laughs> but there's also more like, truths and falsehoods to it like the hardware it either works this way or it doesn't work this way and you can like the result of it or you can not like the result of it but you can definitely get some facts wrong and that that can be very stressful to get that right but you know i, I always like to say that 
when I can dumb down a topic to my level, I'm ready to make a video on it. Uh, <laughs> because, you know, I, I don't want people to think that I'm like some, or either of us are, you know, some tech geniuses, or we really know what we're talking about. We just like, we have, we've made a lot of very good friends in this scene, uh, like Artemio Urbina, uh, who just really understands the technical ins and outs and also have a really good eye for looking at things critically when, you know, we, we send a script and, uh, they're like, Hmm, you know, is, is this really right? Or, you know, maybe you should explain it this way instead. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it, it's very helpful in developing our own understanding of the topic. And I think that is one reason our videos have found some degree of success is because we're trying to wrap our arms around this topic as well, trying to understand it, wrap our heads around it. And once it clicks in our head, it's like, ah, like I know how to explain this, that, you know, someone else could understand too, because a lot of the times the conversations going on out there, if you go to like the, the tech head forums, you know, it's who are doing all of the really cool reverse engineering and developing new products and stuff, you know, they're tech heads talking to tech heads. And if, and if I go to those forums, I don't understand what they're talking about either. So it's always trying to like, you know, I, I'm very good at banging my head against a wall until I, I make some progress in understanding it. Uh, and, uh, you know, that, that's just kind of, I guess where, where we come from, where we're, we're trying to get a more layman's understanding of this stuff and, and try to then convey our understanding of it so that hopefully that makes it easier for other people to understand. And we're, we're not afraid to admit that we were wrong or that we don't understand, you know, we'll let you know that we don't quite understand something, but we'll say like, we'll use words like. Like from our point of view or as like to my eye, this doesn't look any different mm-hmm. than this. You mm-hmm. know, like we, we, we like to let like leave a lot of the stuff up to the viewer to yeah. to interpret that themselves. Right. Right. Sometimes people will leave a comment saying like, well, wait, so what is you, the best you, way? Yeah. You never <laughs> yeah. you never said what's the best way. Well, y- we gave you the information to decide yeah. what is the best way because your, your, your situation is going to be different. Do, do you, I mean, what's your budget? Do you want to, <laughs> are you willing to mod your content? How much do you care? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So it's, 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 it's interesting. No, I completely agree with that. Cause you'll get some YouTubers who will sit there and, you know, you know, I'm not going to drop anybody in it or anything like that. Cause we've had someone on the show and stuff, but they'll say, Oh, this simple mod for $200. And it's just like, $200 is, you know, that's that's a lot of money, you know, for some yes. people just to be like, when I'm a 64 after get it modded so I can play it. Yeah. <laughs> you but know like, what I mean? It, it, but is like the N64, like, do you play the N64 as much as someone else plays their, yeah. you know, current gen Nintendo Switch, Xbox One, PS4? Like, if you're, if, if you're N64, like, that's less than the cost of a new console. So like if you're in 64, it's something you get a lot of mileage out of. It just depends. It totally depends on your situation, what you play. You know, a lot of people will look at our videos and, you know, look at the price of some yeah. of uh, the devices. And they're just like, no way. But I think they also have this perspective. Yeah, of or they're like, usually just like, just emulate it. Yeah. <laughs> that, or, yeah it's not worth the trouble. Just emulate it. Yeah. And, or, or they just have this perspective of like old games, you know, don't have like value. 
like, or they, they have lesser value mm-hmm. you know, or I, I don't know. It's, it's such an interesting thing and everyone's going to be coming at with a, with a different perspective. And all of those perspectives are, are, are absolutely valid. The only thing that gets on my nerves is when some people say like emulation is the best period done. Like emulation is hugely, hugely important, hugely important, but don't act like there's only one right answer for, for how to play games like that. That's not what we're about. We're about spelling out the options for you. Yeah. All you have yeah, to do, like, all you have to understand is what to do with the information you are given. <laughs> <laughs> I tried to make it sound like Gandalf, but I like lost my, lost it. <laughs> I knew what you meant. I thought, I thought it was interesting that you said, you said the quote there and it was literally a direct quote of to my eye, I don't see a difference. I was like, I'm sure I've heard him say that before. Yeah, so that was brilliant. Yeah. For me, like, um, I, it takes you back to that time. If you've got like the original CRT and you're kind of doing yeah. it, but then a lot of other people like emulation or like having it on a big screen or something like that. So yeah, I think it's different flavors for different people. Yeah. Isn't it? I mean me, I'm, I'm kind of split. Like I, I love the crisp pixel look that I can get with an OSSC on my TV or uh, an FPGA system like super NT mega SG on my HGTV. I love that crisp pixel look. Uh, but I also love the look of my CRTs and my PVMs. Uh, it it kind of just depends on my mood. I don't think there's necessarily one better than the other. They they kind of <laughs> give a different quality. But the one thing I will say is that when sharing the experience of a game online, I think doing that that crisp pixel presentation is really the the only really good way to share it because you can well, like add artificial scan lines to a video, but it's going to look, you know, first of all, artificial scan lines really screw up with video compression. Like it just does yeah. not work well. I mean, and depending so on the kind of screen and stuff screen, people are watching on, like you can't, you can't share that scan line experience online very easily. Yeah, that's why, I mean, you'll see some shows, like we do it sometimes with things that where it's not important, where we'll zoom right in and then we'll put in like some fake scan lines. Like like Joe from GameStack has a very good filter that he gives he gives away for free on his on his website that has uh, fake scan lines that you can apply to your game footage if you're zooming way in. Looks It looks, I mean, it looks perfect, <laughs> basically. Yeah. And, and, so, and obviously when we have to show like how this device like performs with artificial scan lines or something, or when we'd like to have close-ups of CRTs, obviously scan lines are there, but when you just have like a full frame, not zoomed in game clip on YouTube with scan lines, like usually it doesn't look very good. So I think that clean pixel look is, is, you know, I, I try to avoid definitive words like, you know, the best way to do blah, 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 blah. But I do think that is the clearest way to show like what this game looks like to someone else. Uh, but it, it is nice when you can use a CRT, you know, in person, obviously. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, what videos do you guys have planned for the future? Is there any cool videos we should be uh, keeping an eye out for? We are just talking about uh, EverDrives. I have a, a, an, a console EverDrive update video that's going to be my okay. next one. I'm, I'm currently... Uh, down in Florida, taking care of my mom who just had some surgery. But I, as soon as I get back, the, the episode's already been uh, scripted. I've recorded all my audio and everything, so I just got to edit it. So that'll be our next episode. 
Awesome. Yeah. And uh, as, as for me, you know, I've been working on the analog frontiers documentary series for an embarrassingly long time. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And it's a, it's a five part documentary series on, uh, uh, I think I think the the I have the words for it on the introduction to the show. If if I can remember what I wrote, I, I think it's uh, a documentary series about the people and technology that keep classic gaming alive. And we've interviewed a ton of people, just a ton of people uh, who are involved in uh, the retro tech uh, preservation scenes uh, in some way. Uh, and so many different perspectives. Uh, and we've got the first two parts of that series out, uh, which the first, the first part is kind of an overview of the, uh, classic gaming scene. Uh, you know, why, why people bother with old games, what lengths they go to, to play the games still. Uh, and part two is about all about original hardware, you know, how long it will last, what kinds of repairs are needed, uh, and, and what kinds of mods can, can push them to go further. And, and coming up next is part three, which is all about going beyond original hardware, you know, having an experience with the games, either in the absence of the original game, in which case, you know, stuff like flash cartridges, optical drive emulators that we were just talking about, uh, or in the absence of the game, but you've got the hardware, uh, or oops, I'm sorry, I got that backwards or, or in the absence of the hardware, but you've got the game. So then you've got options like the FPGA consoles or in the absence of both. So then there's emulation, Mr. Things like that. Uh, so it's that, that, that is going to be a very, very dense subject. Uh, that I think people are going to really enjoy, but, uh, yeah, that's, that's been my main focus for frankly over a year. Uh, just going through all the interviews, scripting it out, uh, and then editing them has taken a tremendous amount of effort. And, and you know, I, I feel guilty constantly uh, that Corey has stepped it up to keep the channel alive as much as he has while I've been uh, while I've been uh, burdened with that uh, that project. I shouldn't say burdened because I mean it is probably the thing that I'm most proud of. You know, it's uh, it's uh, I, I like to think of it is 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 uh is our magnum opus and i don't know if we ever will or ever should or ever even want to make anything that will ever be better because yeah, <laughs> it's, it's a lot of work <laughs> yeah it's very possibly the best thing that we'll ever do oh really really looking forward to seeing that guys uh, thanks so much for coming on the show it's been a really interesting chat yeah yeah thanks for having us